I've done an entity map for Morgan Stanley where there's literally hundreds of LEIs all interconnected. Same for some of these very large companies that can really help figure out how can we trace where the money's going. Dear listeners of The Laundry, welcome back to another episode. Today we're joined by David Silverman. He's the CEO of Global Finreg. We will be discussing LEIs and VLEIs and what the future holds for LEIs in the AML and KYC space. Next up, Ben Brown in the series How Criminals Launder Money will deep dive in, into trade-based money laundering. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's beautiful to have you on the show. We've been really excited to get somebody who's an expert in the LEI space to to join us. But but first off, maybe you could start by telling us a bit about your background, like your business background, where you're from and so forth. Sure. I'm actually Canadian and I spend most of my working life, though, in the States, in Los Angeles and, and the New York area and also in Denmark. So about half in, in the States and half in Denmark in, based in Copenhagen. I've been working in financial technology for 20 plus years. I live in Copenhagen. Back in the US, I worked for two very large multi-strat hedge funds. Mm. So my background is really more on what we call the buy side in the industry. And since 2014, I've been an independent consultant. My company that does that now is called FinTech Builders. And in 2017, I started a company called Global FinRec with a couple partners to provide LEIs, legal entity identifiers, to the Danish marketplace. And, and that was just before the MIFID requirements. And we, you know, we launched in like, I think it was September of 2017. And we, by December, we had 6,000 clients. Mm. And, and since then, we've got about, we've have just over 18,000 now. Brilliant. Great traction, it seems, then, if you if you launched that recently and already got 18,000 clients. It, yeah, it was, it was just great, just being in the right place at the right time. But you mentioned that you've been working in the financial space for 20 plus years. How have you seen the, and especially maybe shed some light on how the differences between working in the States for a hedge fund and working in Denmark is as well, but how have you seen sort of the financial landscape or the work climate within it? change over the last 20 years? I think it's become more complex and more global, more interconnected. And and I think from an LEI perspective and from an AML perspective, I think the legal structures have become more complex. So, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, when I look at it from the buy side, there's, there's a lot, the products have become more interrelated, such as having more complicated swap product or more legal constructs or even additional things such as with with crypto and all those complexities, it require more of a global supervision. So I'd say it's become more complex, more stuff to supervise, more stuff to see and monitor. And I think what's most important is that IT has become even more important for all of these things, whether it's, you know, order routing or tracking or, or, or trade reporting or figure out, you know, what are the sources of, of trades or, or, even where the money's going, IT's become really, really important in, in, in the last 20 years. Absolutely. And I understand you just mentioned the swap products as well. And I understand that sure. in 2008, during the financial crisis, you actually lived through the financial crisis in New York, close to Wall Street as well. Yeah, actually, it, guys are actually a very 
sort of personal, almost a personal thing for me. It, you know, it, in, back in, 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 in March, 2008, the, the financial crisis hit. And, you know, my, my wife was actually in the room when George Bush, uh, George Bush Jr. was at the New York Economic Club giving a speech and was just there while, while everyone was checking their phones and running out and, and because everything was just collapsing. Mm. And, and this, you know, the, the reason why LEIs came about was really to find out who owns who. And, and that was sort of the main problem within, you know, with, with the, the economic crisis was that, uh, you know, with, with Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, no one could figure out when the swaps unwound, like what was the entity structures? Who was on the other side of the swap? Mm. And, and that was a massive, massive problem. And, and, you know, so for us, it's almost like a personal thing. You know, we, we were in, you know, we, we were on TV watching as, you know, people, people we knew were packing their back boxes and leaving Lehman Brothers. And uh, this was only 14 years ago. Yes, it's, it's very recent. It's not been long since I watched The Big Short, which is a brilliant movie, by the way, which I recommend all listeners of The Laundry. If you haven't seen it, you should see it because it's one of the best movies I've seen, especially sort of to to picture what happened during the financial crisis in 2008. But would you fair, it's, I guess that you've seen the movie, would you fair, it's a fair description, sort of what they portrayed? I, I think it, it is completely accurate. Michael Lewis is a brilliant author. And he, I actually, my, one of my CFOs was actually the CFO of Frontpoint Partners. And I've asked him as well. It's like, is this kind of accurate, you know, with the Steve Carell character? He's like, yep, that was exactly it. And, and it, it really does show in a brilliant way how things were connected and how it can just fall apart when mm. just even a credit agency doesn't, you know, S&P just didn't do their job properly. And, and, and just how it was all interconnected and just the fragility of it all. And that, that is what is really, really terrifying and feasibly could be happening right now. I mean, we're having a massive, probably another crisis and another financial crisis right now in a different way. And, and hopefully, I'm not sure what it's going to be the fallout of all this. It may be just crypto, maybe it's something else. But I think LEIs will have an impact on that for sure. And, but, but sorry, to get back, I think I was, to get back to your point, definitely, yeah, I think Michael Lewis's portrayal is absolutely accurate. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's interesting. Michael Burry, who also was sort of one of the for had great foresight to uh, see the crisis coming from. I believe it was two thousand four until the actual crisis hit in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. He keeps on tweeting now as well. Like, okay, now it's the time for the second wave of the big financial crisis. So I feel a lot of people are uh, yeah are worried about what's about to happen now. Yeah, I, I think so too. And it's just, it, 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 you never know until it's happened though. And then it's all in hindsight. That's the scary thing. So. Absolutely. But I feel it's a great transition onto the the topic of the day, which is LEIs. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know I've, I've been trying to deep dive a bit into the LEIs and understand due to the financial crisis. And as you say, it's very hard understanding what entities are you actually doing business with. The Financial Stability Board in 2008 found that it, had to like a we needed a system where across borders you'd be able to identify who are you doing business with basically counterparty screening across different regions across borders because before it was the the individual countries had their individual codes like in for example Norway we have NOMID which is the business identifier and then for example in India you have a way different system and it's very hard to communicate and identify across all this and then 
As a result, the Financial Stability Board created GLIF, which is the Global Legal Entity Identifier Foundation, which is a non-profit where all these numbers sit. And anybody has access to this register and are able to identify the LEI number by just going straight to glyph.com. Is that a fair description? That's a very fair description and exactly right. The LEI is a global business number and it standardizes it across all the countries. And it's the only it's the only database that does that. So it, it's incredibly valuable. Also, because it's it's a, a source of truth within the, the the global view of entities, because you know it tells you who owns who, and you might get a different picture based upon what registry you go to. Especially when, you know in in this increased globalization, you know you you can you can go to to Norway and and see one view. Uh, and then go to Bolivarket in Sweden and possibly see a different mm. view and same and, and, and when all these companies are interrelated. So that it's incredibly useful for that. And it essentially shows who owns who. So the LEI is composed of the entity. It's composed of the direct parent who owns the company directly. And then the ultimate parent who is at the end of that chain. So, and, so and, but, but that means that the direct parent, meaning who owns who, so say, for example, I had a company, I'd have to then identify who owns my company as well. Yeah. But then it's up to that company again to identify who owns them again, correct? Exactly. And, yeah. but, but there's also the ultimate parent. So you guys would, you know, that company would also have the same ultimate parent as your company. So it's really who is the ultimate end beneficiary of the money? Yeah, I I think it's a brilliant initiative, and I'm I'm really looking forward to this to sort of really catch on. Even though it's been ten years, I see mass adoption will probably happen at some point. But in in short, what do you think in terms of why should the world world sorry why should the world care about? Um, I think for various reasons, LEIs are being used for a variety of reasons, mostly around reporting purposes. So it's um, essentially used for things such as, as MIFID reporting, EMEA reporting, AI, FMD reporting even. But it's it's also is very useful for the KYC process. It validates the companies. So I think that's that's really why people should care. It just it's a central place to find out about it. It it's also there's a current initiative to enrich this information by life. So this year Glyph has expanded it to the entities to include fund information. So that's they're kind of on different verticals. They're they're expanding the the information that you can gather about an entity. So this year they you know if you're a fund, they're they're including you should include who is the fund company. So meaning there could be something that's not a company that's not direct parent that's not the ultimate parent, but maybe somewhere in the middle that is the asset management parent, and you can you'll have to declare that. Also a umbrella structure. And also a master feeder structure. These are these are more very specific to the hedge fund industry to really understand these entities better. So there's it's not just to know parents and ultimate parents, also to get more information about each entity. And I think you'll you'll find Glyph doing that probably every year. Expand maybe they'll be doing it for multinationals next year. Maybe they'll be doing it more for government entities. But they'll start drilling down and getting even more date more value out of these entities and once again on a global basis and i think mm. that's what's huge what do you think this will mean for aml and kyc i think it's still developing i think for kyc the lei is already part of the process <clears throat> you need to have an lei so might as well use it for the registration 
for the KYC portion. It validates the company. It doesn't do the full KYC, but it does a fair amount of it. So it, it definitely speeds the onboarding. I think for AML, it's, I think this is just starting to emerge. I actually showed you recently how, how we've, we've actually created an entity map that shows how LEIs are linked. And that right now there's 2 million companies, over 2 million companies that are registered in Glyph. As more and more, more, more and more of those companies get registered and we have LEIs, the value for AML becomes greater and greater because it's a source of truth. It mm. shows here's how, who owns who, who owns who. So I, I, I've, if I've done an entity map for Morgan Stanley where there's literally hundreds of LEIs all interconnected. Same for Goldman Sachs, same for some of these very large companies that can really help figure out where is, where, how can we trace where the money's going? And there can be, you know, obviously if there's nefarious people out there, they're not going to do the, they won't be registering their LEIs, but it's definitely a, a great source to, to speed up AML for, for compliant companies. Mm. But it's been 10 years plus now since Glyph yeah. was founded and it's sort of baffling that it's not been more mandatory, like more legislations making it mandatory for businesses to have an LEI number. Why, why is this? Well, LEIs are inherently annoying to customers. They they have to pay for it. They have to do, to to pay for it every year and get renewed. That information is verified every year, which also makes it valuable. But it's driven by regulators. So needed for MIFID trade reporting, MAR market abuse, sorry, MAR, which is market <laughs> abuse reporting, CFTC for commodities reporting, things along those lines. Once, So it's really required more for reporting purposes. So like say within Denmark, if you're going to trade something, you're going to before you open a brokerage account, you're going to have to have an LEI number. So it's needed for, for most reporting, which people find maybe somewhat annoying. However, things are changing. There is an initiative where, where it's on the FSB roadmap for, for cross-border payments. And it's actually very telling right now to talk about that because India is the first country to roll that out. And they're going to make it required in October, so next mm. month, for, for companies to have an LEI if they're going to be doing a cross-border payment. And I think this is massive for AML and massive, you know, for the LEI adoption. So anytime any any company co company in India is sending money outside of India, they will be required to have an LEI. And this is going to be adopted by different countries over the next probably two years. I think the FSB has it for adoption for 2024, 2025. Yeah, no, this is my point as well. Like, Maybe I have a bit of a simplistic view of this, but it seems like this is a no-brainer. It seems like if you're doing cross-border payment, either if it's on your counterparties, if it's your value chain, if it's the suppliers, if it's goods or services that you sell, as long as any money sort of transfers from one country to another country, you shouldn't be allowed to do that if you don't have an LEI. But it it, it might not be that simple, but I'm asking why? Why isn't it, why isn't it that simple? Well, it, it's just, once again, it'll be driven by legislation once it's actually required. I mean, it's nice to have, but, but I think businesses, if you're, if you're, you know, <clears throat> PayPal or wise, you're not going to, you don't want to send away your customer unless you have to, you know, oh, you were not going to have an, L, you know, you can't do a, tra a transfer unless you, you have an LAI. Once it's actually required, then they, I, I think the value of it will become even more apparent and, and in particular make AML job much, much easier. But it's yeah. I, I wish it was just required now for everyone. Uh, yeah, but, but how do we get there? How do we get to the point where it is required for for everyone? I I think it's it will be. I I think it's just find them with more use cases, and I think the way to make it required is is 
I, I, I suppose it's along those lines of, of the cross-border payments. It's like, it's, it's uh, other uses as well where it's required because just sometimes I think, I think it'd be very valuable for AML, but for the average person, oh, geez, that's kind of another, it's, it's like having to go pay to get your, your URL for your website registered every year. It's, oh, that's just something I have to do. But I think that if we can maybe combine it with the business number adoptions, I think that's one way of doing it, but it's, it's really, yeah. I, I probably didn't answer that correctly, but I. <laughs> no, no, Sorry. no. You're, you're, yeah. you're absolutely fine. But I'm, I'm thinking like in, in terms of just ESG, in terms of value chain mapping, supplier yeah. mapping, like it has so many use cases. As long as you know who are you doing business with and who are the person that you are doing business with, doing business with, as long as you're able to map that, map that out properly, you solve a lot of the key issues which we're facing in sort of the current complex climate of not knowing who. Who's sanctioned? Yeah. Like who's on the end of who's the ultimate beneficial owner, and so forth and so forth. And and actually, you're absolutely right. And I think it's you, if you go look at companies like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, they get it. That's why they have an LEI for every single entity because they know how important it is. And is and it, it it is incredibly valuable for so many so many research purposes, such as M and A, like figuring out what is that that entity structure or credit checks. I think there's a lot of different needs here that could be fulfilled. And I think as, I think then eventually it'll become sort of a no-brainer. Oh, you just need to get an LEI. And then that's when I think everyone's just going to do it as part of just incorporating their their uh, companies. Some of our clients do that. We have some leading law firms that use our product because we really help manage multiple LEIs in particular for clients. And they do that for their clients. Oh, you're going to start a business. Okay. You should probably, you're going to need an LEI as well. And they'll take mm. care of that for them. And just yeah, make so, it so they the, actually pay, they, they would actually pay for them. Yes, exactly. Just pay it. And in fact, some, a lot of our asset manager clients actually just pay for the LEI. If you're, if you're actually managing a very large amount of money for a client, you just take care of it for them because you know, it's required. You don't want it to halt anything in terms of their reporting. So that's a, that's a, I think it's something that's commoditized and will just be done automatically at some point. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't yeah. quite get the business model where they wouldn't pay for it to be fair because i I know how much time is being spent on calculating who is the owner's owners and and so forth in 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 a bank for example and how much time that takes up it would be probably much cheaper for the bank just to pay the lei sort of application for for the business for them yeah i i would definitely encourage banks to to take this seriously and, and and internalize the LEI process, which is something we help our clients do. It's like, okay, make, we'll give you a proper LEI website in your brand and do mm. it that way and get your clients through the process and handhold it, which is really what we try to do. We try to simplify the process. Because today you, to issue an LEI certification, you need to be certified with Glyph, correct? Yes. So there's actually three, so there you have Glyph, which is the holder of all the information. And then they have underneath them are local operating units, which mm. are sort of very large companies, usually very large companies who've gone through a very rigorous accreditation purpose, or sorry, accreditation. And there's probably about 30 of those. And then underneath us, Global FinReg is a registration agent. So we're actually certified as well by the LOUs to provide uh, LEI numbers. So we get the information, but then we actually send it to an LOU 
who are ultimately responsible for the KYC of the companies. And they're the ones who actually do issue the numbers. Hmm. But everyone has to be certified through the process. Okay. It's very interesting. So that means the business model is that Finrig, for example, issues the LEI. So, so you guys sell the application form and take care of everything for them. And then you send the information to the LOU yes. that then verifies the information and puts it into Glyph. Exactly. And then we use all, we generally use a lot of technology, a lot of lookups to speed that up. So we do a lot of lookups to corporate registries and automatize that process and automatize the process directly to the LOUs as well. So we can get, we essentially can get lower prices by making the whole process smoother and better and build solutions around the LEIs. Nice. Would you say there's a lot of scam artists out there as well? I understand since there's so many companies now probably in the position to start issuing LEIs. Would you say that it's a competitive market so that scam artists and, uh, will, will arise? Well, it's, it's a, that's a really great question because, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't think people would necessarily get scammed because it's essentially a KYC process. So uh, otherwise you're, 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 you're essentially paying to do KYC on a company. Um, and then you basically maybe done them a favor, but there's a lot of actors in this space who are really doing some, some where I wouldn't necessarily trust them. So I wouldn't necessarily always go for the cheapest solution. There's a lot of agents out there that are just trying to send misinformation. Uh, your LEI is going to expire. You, you have to come to us to renew it. And there's kind of scamming people that way just to get information or acquire a very large number of LEIs just to feasibly sell that to someone else. So they don't really take the business seriously. And and ultimately, we're in a compliance space. We should be, we're, you know, I, I is, for me, it's almost a personal thing. It's about really providing a value and taking it very seriously. And I've had a lot of talks of our LOUs about this. Like, this is, this is our job. You know, it's not a, we cannot be lying to our clients. So, uh, you know, we will tell you where your LEI is and we will tell you when it needs to be renewed. So I think, you know, the lo- I don't think people have to be too concerned about being scammed, but be careful where you register. Hmm. Good tip. Would you say this is going to be sort of the big game changer in terms of reducing money laundering across financial systems? I think ultimately, and I think that's going to be based upon legislation. I think, yeah, I, I think if, if you look at money laundering, it's really about moving money around. So it's when you start getting into, I, I think it'll be a game changer once the FSP really does make it, works with different countries to make it a, a legislative thing. So, I mean, you, we've seen issues at Danske Bank you know, with money laundering into to Estonia. And we've seen hmm. issues in the UK with money laundering. This become very, very big for that. And I, I think it's, it, it's about the adoption and, and, and adopting it for, for not just cash, but also for other types of trans- money or wealth transfer, such as cryptocurrencies. As long as being able to track where that money comes from, I think that it will be a massive, massive game changer. So you mentioned cryptocurrency there. So with cryptocurrency, there's also a unique identifier that goes into the blockchain, which is a large portion of the value proposition of the blockchain. And sort of you need mass adoption to make it viable and you need transparency, which it should provide, which is one of its key value propositions. So mentioning these points, I feel there's a lot of similarities with the value propositions of the legal entity identifiers, the lies as well. Would you say that's a fair description? I, I definitely think it'd be a fair description. And, and in fact, it's kind of the holy grail 
of the blockchains is the identity layer. This is something that you'll find in certain blockchains like Concordium trying to, to solve. And I think that you'll see that also in Ethereum, that this is becoming very, very prevalent. The, the whole use of, an, of there's, you know, it's actually really interesting. The last podcast with, with, with Marcus from January, who talked about how there really is no anonymous blockchain. This is true. Like, yeah, the, you do get, everything is baked into each blockchain. But then how do you actually then go the next mile, which is figuring out, okay, what company is associated with that? And that's very, very important not just to within cryptocurrencies, but also if you look at Ethereum and smart contracts, which is ultimately what you want to do, which are really legal agreements. How are you going to do a legal agreement with a company if you can't verify who is the company behind it? Seems like a great combo though, if you have both have sort of the, the blockchain identifier as well as the LEI number in the same transaction. Uh, definitely, or, it, you know, actually, I think that's going to bring us to our next point, I think, or my next point, which is about the VLIs. Yeah, which is, a, I think it's very, very exciting, which is something like life is just coming out because, yeah, you, it's, you could have that number, but you're not, probably not going to embed the block, the, that number into the blockchain. But that's kind of where VLIs come in. So, so what is a VLI? A VLI is a, ver is a verified lie. It's a verified identity. Verifiable identities are really, really important within with the blockchain world. And so what this is, is it, the VLI verifies the company and issues a certificate for it, which can then be put into a wallet. It also verifies the signatories. So the signatories also are verified and then can have their wallet as well. From there, you have the root of trust. And you can then essentially do verified credentials for the entire company. So from there, so, so for example, if, if, if your CEO at Strice had a VLI, they could then give you a credential that could go into your wallet that then you can either act on behalf of the company. And then that's how it can interact with the blockchain. And that's, that to me is the game changer of the blockchain and also say within cryptocurrencies to track where the money's coming from. So, it, it, you know, in, in the last podcast, Marcus pointed out that there is no an anonymity within the blockchain and within crypto. It all goes to the exchanges. That might be true. But how are you going to get that information from the exchanges? If within a, mm. a smart contract or within a transaction, you have a verifiable lie where you can then track directly to a company, you don't even have to go to the authorities to go to the exchange to find out who did the transaction. You could actually really find out you know, who did it because it will actually be, chain, be attached. That certificate will actually be attached to the blockchain. So essentially, instead of having the LEI embedded within the blockchain, you'll actually have a, a, a VLI certificate that's attached to the, the blockchain. But the VLI will work without the blockchain as well. It will work with traditional fiat currencies as well. Is this correct or is, that, is, is it just a pure sort of blockchain uh, concept? Well, it's, it's a certificate. So it's a digital certificate that can be used in a wallet or for whatever purposes. I think it's not so much. But, but is it stored? Is it stored on the blockchain, or could you use it without any sort of blockchain technology as well? You could use it without any any blockchain as well. It's, it'll be blockchain independent. So okay. it won't Understood. be tied to any one blockchain, and it, it'd be it, it could be used for multiple multiple reasons. Um, so you know, for example, I, I think I mentioned you know smart contracts. I mean, which is I think much more interesting even than the digital currencies. That something's going to could definitely explode. NFTs as well, obviously. Pretty much any digital verification. There could be other ways of using the VLI. I mean, for example, and and 
maybe it'll be integrated with, say, Banky Day or maybe yep. here in Denmark, Midi Day or something along those lines. I think there will be a lot of different applications for it. Brilliant. So in two years from now, VLIs, LEIs, where are we at? Where do you think the, the market's heading? I think there'll be, in two years, I think the number of LEIs are going to multiply by five to 10. At least I hope so, obviously, as a someone who, who gives them out. But I, <laughs> I, I think it's always been, been driven by legislation. So if it's required by cross-border payments from multiple countries, you're going to see a huge adoption of it, just like we have in India. And then it's going to become even more useful for the AML process. I think there's going to have to be a tipping point where, as you said, it's just this could be used in different ways for businesses. Same thing with VLIs. The, the VLI is just, you know, the pilot programs are just coming out. We don't offer it yet at Global FinReg, but, but it's something that we'll be planning on doing soon. But it's really just a question of timing. We could be, you know, six months away from it. We could be three years away from a mass adoption of VLIs, but it's definitely the best way of, you know, with a, a digitally verifying someone on the blockchain. Mm. That brings me to sort of my last question, which is when you think we'll meet, uh, reach a uh, critical mass on this one? That's a very difficult question. You know, I think there's two. <laughs> That's why I say oh, yeah. there's lost. like about 2 million companies <laughs> now that have LEIs. I think, uh, I mean, it's, there's already been a, a very large adoption of it. I mean, I, I think in the last, I mean, over a million I mean, I think when we started this, there were around a million LEIs back in 2017. So those have been double. I think that it'll grow exponentially. So I think critical mass maybe mm. it may be another five years, but it's a, a very, very difficult thing. Mm. I don't control the legislation process. So, but if you go out to Glyph's website and go look through, through all the different rules, there's so many rules in so many different countries or organizations or, or even you know, that, that are using it. It just, it will expand. And I think it, there'll be one use case that'll probably be the killer use case. I think there will be VLIs, but, but we'll see. It's going to be super interesting following this. And I really do appreciate you joining the podcast. It's been brilliant great. talking Thanks to you, so David. Thanks so much, Frederick. I pre really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, you too. Have a great day. Let's talk about trade-based money laundering, also known as TBML. Welcome back to this week's How Criminals Launder Money. Trade-based money laundering is one of the most commonly used and challenging methods to detect. In its simplest definition, trade-based money laundering is the process of disguising the proceedings of crime and moving money using trade transactions to legitimize the illicit origins. Typical forms of TBML include over and under invoicing goods and services, invoicing these multiple times, over and under shipping, and falsely describing goods and services. Trade transactions are complicated to monitor due to their complex nature and volume. Often, banks do not have access to the documents that underlie the trade, which might indicate whether something illegal has been done. For example, in open account trade, the transaction is completed between a buyer and a seller. In these instances, the bank's only responsibility is to initiate the transaction on behalf of their clients, and these are often done through automatic payment systems. Prevention methods do exist though. For example, the retrospective review of data on the export and import. The use of blockchain technology to increase the visibility and the integrity of the trade which can be used by both the regulators and market participants, and the automation of document review processes. In such a scenario, a bank is often blind to the purpose and the documents underlying the transaction. 
However, there are still ways to detect it, such as significant differences in the bill of lading, differences between the invoice and apparent fair market value of the goods being transported, differences between the shipment and the importer's or exporter's stated business purpose. New technology gives criminals an advantage, but with perseverance and time, authorities will become more capable to uncover these new methods. This is one of the many ways to launder money, but there's still more to cover. Make sure to follow us to stay updated on our next episode. See you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Laundry. For more content, please follow us on LinkedIn and go to Strive.ai to check out the other podcasts. Talk to you next week. Yeah,